Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 John chapter 3, page 1901 in most of the Pew Bibles in your New Testaments. Let's pray as we prepare to open God's Word and hear what He has to say to us. Father in heaven, we are in your presence, and we're about to open your word. And in that passage that we're going to read this morning is a really tough question. Give us your grace to understand. Work with your Holy Spirit and allow us to respond in a way to your word which is appropriate and brings glory to your name. So touch us deeply, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's begin, chapter, uh, 1 John chapter 3, beginning at verse 11. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. And then our text, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. The word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when I think about the matter of world hunger, a host of different thoughts flood my mind, thoughts that often bring about a certain amount of confusion, and I'll be honest, even guilt. And maybe you can identify with some of these. For example, when I think about world hunger and start to read about it, like in the material handed out a couple of weeks ago in our mailboxes connected with the Peter Fish program, I think about how little I know about world hunger. I think about how little I can identify with those who have to visit a food bank 
or how little I can identify with the one in eight people on the globe that are malnourished. I think about how many times in a day I open the refrigerator or cupboard in order to find something to prepare, to prepare a meal or just even to find something to snack on. And usually when I, I usually I'm not disappointed. And if I am, I just write it on a grocery list and then I go to the market or to the grocery stores in this town and then I just buy what I need. And it's not an issue. When I think about world hunger, I think about the markets and the grocery stores in this town packed to the rafters with food, food, and more food. I think about how blessed we are and how unfair it is that there are those in this, in this world who, who can't even get enough food for one day. When I think about world hunger, I think about a recent study in USA Today that reported that in the United States, over $9 billion was spent on transporting food aid compared to $7.4 billion on actual food during a 10-year period. That was a joint investigation by USA Today and students at Northwestern University's Medell School of Journalism. There's an old law apparently in the United States that says any food aid that's given to other countries must be grown in the United States, in mainland USA. And those who are concerned about foreign aid want to flip that equation. That doesn't make sense. You're spending $9 billion transporting food and only $7.4 growing it or making it, preparing it. I can't help but wonder are the same kind of figures available in this country. When I think about world hunger, I think about the report the Christian Reformed Committee for Contact with the Government sent to the Canadian government concerning issues of food justice. I think about the MICA challenge and our own C2C cycling event, all intended to end poverty and hunger. I think about the number of children in this city that go to school without breakfast, prompting one of my neighbors to be involved in the school breakfast program. I think about Ray of Hope and the people whom some of you have helped as you prepared a meal for them. I think of the Canadian Food Grains Bank and their efforts to raise crops that can be shipped overseas. I think of the gleaners and their taking in of produce that cannot be sold here for some reason because we don't really want them because they're a little bit crooked or they're oddly shaped or whatever. And they make it into soup stock to be used in other nations of the world. I think about our Thanksgiving weekend food drive and the pile of food that was picked up by the food bank truck. When I think of world hunger, I think of places in this world where there's political instability because of hunger. Hungry people sometimes make for desperate situations. When I think of the world, world hunger, I think of the incredible disparity between the rich and the poor. 
I remember being struck by that when we were in Haiti. We spent a year in Haiti. I remember hearing the astonishing statistic that 2% of the population of over 8 million people own 80% of the land and all of the resources of that land. 2%. The disparity between the rich and the poor in this world is striking. And when I think of world hunger and poverty, I inevitably, inevitably think about how the Western world has tended to throw money at it or give endless handouts to the poor, and I think about the damage those handouts have done to the poor and to the way in which we view the hungry and the poor. What do you think about when you hear world hunger. What images come to your mind? And if you've had a chance to read some of the material distributed by with the Peter Fish two weeks ago, what did you learn and how did it affect your outlook on world hunger? Tonight in your community care groups, you'll have a chance to share some of your thoughts about that. Certainly, when I think of world hunger and when I think of poverty, I think of how complicated and how difficult of an issue it is to solve or to do anything about, to do anything appropriate. But I certainly don't pretend to have all the answers, nor do I know how to solve the problem. I really don't. But after reading 1 John 3, and specifically verse 17, it would appear that as a Christian, I simply do not have an option to walk away from the hungry and the thirsty and the naked and the poor. I may be overwhelmed by the issues of world hunger. I may be terribly confused as to what to do about poverty, but doing nothing is not an option. And it all has to do with that little word, love. Verse 11, this is the message we heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Love. Ah, such a popular word in our vocabulary. It's something many people talk about, even more people sing about. Think about all the songs that you know that talk about love. It's ongoing in our society, and soon it's going to ramp up again. And that's precisely because I say these kind of things that I got the Grinch t-shirt and the Grinch hat. I know that. But the bombardment of commercials that basically tell us that we truly show love for one another if we buy, buy, and then buy some more during that giving season of Christmas. Incidentally, Student Impact is going to be talking about commercials and going to be talking about stewardship this week. Here's hoping that you will not fall for the lies and the bombardment this year. A boy whispers in his girlfriend's ear, if you love me, you'll go to bed with me. Again, the word love is used. Don't fall for that line. It's not love. Love, such an overused word. I love Skittles, I love you, I love Jesus. I sure hope the love spoken about in each situation is not meant to mean the same. 
There's all sorts of ideas about what love is and about what love may look like, but in most cases, the word has become bereft of all meaning. In many ways, we live in an incredibly confused world when it comes to love. Look at the Gian Gomeshi story. So what's real love? Well, the Bible has something to say about that in 1 John 3, 16 through 18. There the Apostle John begins with an ideal definition of love, and then he brings it home and he makes it very practical for us, so practical that it even works itself out in these little orange fish up here in these nets. To begin with, the Bible tells us that real love can be best described by what Jesus Christ has done. In order to understand what true love is, the apostle points us to the supreme example of love. And when we try to, to describe the purest form of love, when trying to tell us about the extent of real love, John points us to the cross, to the cross on Calvary where the one, namely Jesus Christ, laid down his life for us. Verse 16, by this we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And when John writes about that, he's not writing about some sentimental emotion or about some friendship, but he is talking about a love which is intensely practical, a love made on decision. The love mentioned here in our text for this morning is known in the Bible as that agape love, to use the Greek word, that self-giving love. The way John talks about love here in chapter 3 is such that this, is, this type of love is that one is prepared to say no to their own life so that someone else may live. Jesus Christ laid down his life so that you and I, so that all who believe might live for all eternity. He died to allow us to pass from death to life. And in order to properly understand this kind of love, we ought to note that the laying down of one's life is done for the benefit of others and not in any way for the benefit of the one who lays down his life. It's a selfless act, totally selfless. So the message of the gospel, the good news the Christian faith has to proclaim to all the world is that Jesus Christ laid down his life, not for his benefit, but for our benefit. And the death of Jesus was not simply a demonstration of love in the sense that we might look at the crucified Christ and then say, wow, Jesus must have really loved in order to do that and then leave it at that. No, we do not come to know true love by simply looking at the event, but we come to understand the true love which God gives us only when, he, when we experience the benefits of Jesus' death, namely the new life given to us the new status that we pass from death to life, as verse 13 says. 
As far as John is concerned, pointing to the extreme example is not enough to define true love. And this kind of love that I'm talking about now, you will know it is very different doesn't even come near to what we call love when we're talking about loving skittles or when we use the word love in the context of sex. John continues, verse 16, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. The same point is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And then Jesus goes on to say, and by the way, you are my friends. In other words, love means a readiness on your and my part to do anything for other people. It means saying no to one's own life so that others may live. It means being ready to meet others' needs, whatever the cost will be to us, and be willing to give that gift without any sort of complaint. Being prepared to give up our very life for our neighbor is a very high ideal and something that perhaps many of us cannot really identify with. And so John goes on in verse 17 to talk about the same thing, but in a less costly sense. And he does so because he wants us to understand that love is not just an ideal, not just something which only Jesus being true God and true man can attain, but true love is very practical. Love is an action word. So look what he says in verse 17. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? And suddenly love comes crashing down out of the realm of the ideal, giving up my life for others. Suddenly it comes down, crashing down out of that ideal into our very own lives. And suddenly we come to understand that these orange fish have something to do with true love. So look at the text. If anyone has material possessions, well, we have material possessions. I don't need to spend a whole lot of time documenting that fact. You just need to look at the parking lot this morning, at our houses, our businesses. You need to look at all those all those. Um, what are they called, where you put the stuff, you know, those, those storage boxes and, and that have grown up all over the place. Unbelievable in our society. We've got so much stuff, we have to rent storage space to put it. And then others have fun with it, with a live television show. We're blessed. There's no question. But the Bible would tell, of us, tell us, folks, it's all not going to last. It all wastes away. So if anyone has material possessions, well, that's us. And we certainly have seen our brother and sister in need. That's the second part of the text. Documentaries, news reports, church publications, the Peter Fish program, all have shown us in no uncertain terms the needs of this world. Some of you may remember in 2006 there was a campaign called Make Poverty History. And there was a famous video that went with that campaign. It involved various celebrities snapping their fingers. Remember that? In a steady rhythm. 
And each time a finger snapped, it signified a child dying somewhere in the world of hunger and poverty. And they would just, that's the way, that's the rhythm it went. So think about that. Another child dies. Another child dies of hunger. Another child dies of hunger and poverty. It was just a really touching and moving video. In spite of that particular campaign, hunger and poverty continue. They're not history. Stories continue. Some of us have come face to face with it when we helped it out of the cold or at Ray of Hope. And through the media, whether we have wanted to, to be or not, nonetheless, we have been witness to virtually every type of suffering in the world. There is simply no way that any one of us can plead ignorance anymore. So how do we respond to all of that? Well, how did Jesus respond? He had pity on us. That is to say, the Lord saw us in our fallen state, and it touched him, says the Bible, to the core of his being. That word pity speaks of being affected right in the bowels of one's being. It talks about compassion so much that it hurts the gut. That's how Jesus responded to us. Our condition, being dead in our trespasses and sins, our condition hurt him in the gut, so he was flooded with compassion, and he gave his son. He ended up giving himself for us. And when we understand that gospel, and when we accept that gospel, it has to make a difference in our lives. Those who are disciples of Jesus reflect Jesus. Look at chapter 1 or verse 1, chapter 1 verse 6. If we claim to have fellowship with him Christ, yet walk in darkness, we lie. And the truth is not in us. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother and sister in need but has no pity on him or her, then how can the love of God be in him? James states this as well. He says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Is not faith. John insists that we can tell who is a Christian by observing their actions. In chapter 2, verse 5 and 6, John writes, This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. In other words, if we're not walking as Jesus did, then we can also not confess him. So how's your walk going? We sang a few weeks ago, they will know we are Christians by our love. 
How's that going for you? You can talk about it some more in your community care groups tonight. But allow me a crack at it from my own perspective. If we're honest, many of us, including myself, would probably have to confess that it's not going quite as well as it ought. Oh, we may give some money for the needy, but really pour our heart and soul, really have that gut compassion for them? That's kind of another story. And I suspect that we always make sure that we're taken care of first. And if we're honest, then I suspect we must also in many cases confess that we often just let needs continue and we pass by on the other side of the road, so to speak, like those in the parable of the Good Samaritan because, you know, life is so busy and I'm involved in this, that, the next thing, i got to get it all done and if I don't get it done, then uh, you know the story. Maybe we're at a point in life we don't know how to begin to tackle such a huge worldwide problem, so, well, we just kind of ignore it and hope that it'll all go away. Besides, the government will deal with it somehow, as long as our taxes don't go too high. Some of us are embarrassed by the poor and the needy. Others may be fearful of getting involved because they're afraid of the demands that may be placed on them if they get too deeply involved in the poor, with the poor. Where will it end if I really pour my heart and soul into their lives? Do I have time for that? Others may hold to the attitude that if the poor just lived life like we did, then they wouldn't be poor anymore. Others perhaps may come from the perspective that the poor are basically lazy people who reap what they sow. And then some have become immune to all the problems. And we're not driven to the indignation and compassion that ought to accompany a Christian concerning injustices in our society and we're unsure to do what to do about all of it. There's all sorts of thoughts and excuses floating around in our minds concerning the plight of many people in our world. And I suspect you are just as uncomfortable as I am when you come to a traffic stop and there's someone standing on the aisle with a little sign, I'm poor, help me, God bless you. What do you do with that? Talk about that in your groups tonight. But now listen again to what the Lord asks us through the Apostle John. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother and sister in need but has not pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? I hate that question. I wish it wasn't in the Bible. Boy, it's a tough one. And then in verse 18, the Apostle comes at it again showing that indeed love is an action word. And there he calls, uh, he calls on his readers to love not merely by saying all sorts of pious things, but to, pack, to back all those pious statements up with words and with actions, or with actions and with deeds. Just talking about the needs of our community or our world is not good enough. 
The love we're called upon to exhibit is a love which is self-giving. It's the same sort of love that Jesus gave for us when he died on the cross. Can you imagine if God in his heaven had sat there and talked about our problems? Those poor people on that earth. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. They're all condemned. There's no hope for them at all in the future. Oh, isn't that awful? What are we going to do about it? Well, I don't know. Let's talk about it for a while. Can you imagine if God had done that? But he didn't because love is an action word. He sent his son. He did something about it. And that son died a horrible death for you and for me. And the love that we're called upon to exhibit is a love which is self-giving, the same sort of love that Jesus gave for us when he died on the cross. And when we live that way, we prove that we are children of the Lord. You know, the need for in this world is not for all kinds of heroic acts of martyrdom. But the need for the, in this world is for heroic acts of love, shown, says John, through material sacrifice. Jesus said, I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. When we get right down to it, what John is saying in chapter 3, verse, first, first John 3, 16 through 18, is that the death of Jesus Christ, his supreme sacrifice on the cross, is showing us what true love is. And that death on the cross is the supreme stimulus for Christian benevolence. In other words, we love because he first loved us. We care because he first cared for us. We save because He saved us. We give because He gave to us. And our loving and our caring and our saving and our giving are also an indication of the genuineness of our faith. By your fruits you shall know them. In response to Christ's love for us, we do good works. As he cared for the poor, namely you and me, so we also ought to respond to those who are poor, not only in terms of material things, but also in terms of spiritual poverty. Oh boy. There is much confusion about the meaning of the word love in our society, but the Bible is not confused by it at all. It tells us that the supreme example of the love of love, the supreme demonstration of true love was given us through Jesus' death on the cross. And remember that love is an action word. 
And if you and I want to truly love and show that we understand something of what Jesus did for us, poor sinners that we are, then these little Peter fish are most appropriate. But we cannot stop there because this is just giving money and learning some things about the poor. These are but tokens, very small tokens of our pity, of our concern, of our love. But beyond this, the Lord calls us to a life of service in His name and for His sake. And tonight, you can talk together about what else you can do to help those in need. And if you're not part of those groups, then go to the website of World Renew and have a look at the kinds of things they suggest that you can do. Dear children, says John, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in deed and in truth. That is, after all, how Jesus loved us. Amen. Let me pray with you. O oh Lord God, sometimes the things we read in the Bible are pretty tough. And I said I hate it that this verse is there. Not really, but really. Because somehow it, it elevates us to a, a different level of service and compassion than we are perhaps used to. Oh, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the life that you give us in Christ. Thank you for the hope that you give us for the future. Allow us, O oh Lord, to be people who are responding in glad hope with lives of thanksgiving, helping those and everyone else who is in need. And then truly, people will know that we are Christians. Oh Lord, we pray for the indwelling of your Holy Spirit. We pray for your leading and for your guiding. And we pray that the faith may be more than just words. To you be the glory. Hear our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.